right now. Perfect. Oh, it's already live. It oh. should be already. Okay, perfect. Okay. Hi, Michael. By the way, Hi. happy belated birthday again. I want the audience to just say happy birthday to Michael. And thank <laughs> you so much for taking the time. I can't believe yesterday we chat and I did not know it was your birthday until like I saw on Facebook. It's Michael's birthday. I barely remember, but that's okay. <laughs> oh my God. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. Of course. Um, I, okay, so we'll start with, oh God, I can't believe I wrote this really cringy joke. But anyway, so what does Paris Hilton, Jake Paul, and me have in common? We're all in Creator Dow, thanks to Michael. Uh, but anyway, so I'm a part of Creator Dow. Michael is the founder of Creator Dow, and Michael is probably one of the most connected person in Silicon Valley, I constantly feel like, you know, everyone and then you're super like generous with your connections. I'm like really thankful for, you know, you helping me getting introductions to certain people. And I just feel like you're also super knowledgeable about the fundraising and startup space. So today we're going to go over some really interesting topics in the founding of fund and the investing space in general. Thank okay. you so much for the kind words. Yeah, I'm happy, happy to share whatever I have. <laughs> okay, I blame it's like 9 a.m. and we're live and I'm just like barely awake. But anyway, so, okay. So the first topic I prepared is, you know, we chat about like depending on the, depending on people's career goals, like they should pick how to start the fund the best. Oh, by the way, so this is about like, you know, how do you start a fund and then how do you go about your career um, at, you know, picking how to start your own fund. Um, so the so basically there are four typical ways for someone to become a fund manager or solo GP or some sort. Like so number one is syndicate and then number two is like scouting for a fund. Number three is starting raising, just start raising your own fund. Number four is like personal investing. So the syndicate route, I wonder like how how do people start their first syndicate and who should they ask to, you know, like basically what kind of deals should they prepare and then what kind of investor should they go after? So usually you do something like AngelList. There's a couple other platforms out there. I think AngelList is the most well-known of them. Typically what you do is there's a couple different ways to do it. And again, even the AngelList platform has shifted around mm -hmm. over the years. Um, but at least what I've seen is if you write a good deal memo and it's really like, I would say most syndicates tend to follow strong leads. Like if Sequoia is doing a deal, there's going to be a lot of interest. If you're writing your own memo and there's nobody else coming in, I think there's a lot of hesitancy around it. But you can basically access the AngelList platform. Back in the day, there used to be a fund that would also, that was, um, raise external how that would just look at every syndicate and be able to invest passively. Right now, you might have to basically leverage the platform to find LPs. You can invite people. I've, I've seen this on LinkedIn where somebody reaches out and says, like, hey, would you like to join my syndicate? They sh share the link to a syndicate. So it makes the process of paperwork way easier because AngelList just takes care of it. So you've, if you're already on AngelList, it's basically really easy to add to another fund because all the banking relationships, all the... Um, checks on a credit investors is already there. So usually I say, hey, start a syndicate on AngelList. 
figure out ways to invite people to join your syndicate. Sometimes people have partnered with other syndicates to do that because a lot of times, especially if they're grandfathered in back in the day, it was really easy to start a syndicate and really easy to invite people. It might be tougher now. So a lot of times you might partner with another syndicate to invite folks. For sure. I wonder like what kind of deal do you feel like fits the bar of like a really good deal as your first syndicate deal? I think it's a cop-out answer in some ways, but whatever has a strong lead with it. And the reason is, like, I, I remember during my time at HBS, they did a study of, like, what the best deals was, and one of the strongest correlations was which partner out of VC fund does it. And then you realize, well, yeah, because that person's doing all the due diligence. They're saying they're looking at all the space, the market, everything the VC does, and so it correlates strongly with that. That's typically how you start off. Because everybody knows they want in on the Andreessen deal or the Sequoia deal or Excel deal, whatever the top deal is. And so they're doing less thinking. I've definitely seen over time, once you build trust within the syndicate, what you can do is just start writing a really good memo and everybody either believes it or doesn't. A lot of times what you do when you sign a syndicate, be like, hey, I'm hosting a Zoom call with the founders. And then so you're basically the person pitching on behalf of the founders I would say, however, if you're looking for a first easy deal, just have strong leads behind it because it just it tends to correlate one with easy and syndicate, and two, somebody else is doing the diligence on your behalf. For sure, I wonder, like, how would you go about enter into these like strong leads deals? Because I feel like as angel investors, like we typically would get either like friends or like friend of yeah. friend. Like someone that you know in that bracket, but like、uh, at that point, you probably didn't really compare notes with four hundred other competitors. Like since like many people are angel investing on the side, they're not like professional investors. They don't have like the time to go over you know the sixty five competitor of the legal AI space or whatever. Yeah. So like I wonder like in terms, and then the other side is like you know、uh, there's like the other thing is like as like when you enter a deal a lot. Earlier than other people, you have to have strong conviction before they're like identified by Sequoia or like A six Z or something like that. So I wonder, like, at that point, you probably don't know if like they're gonna invest, and you just have to take a risk. But like, that's kind of really risky for your co-investors or like people in your syndicates. So I wonder, like, how do you go about approaching these deals? And sometimes, like, when they are like. That when they're already identified by one of these lead investors, and like it's kind of late for you to kind of putting money in. So I wonder how would you kind of like navigate this situation? Yeah. Oh wait, let me actually add one more to the previous question. That the other way sometimes it's done without strong leads. It's just a one-owned company. Like I have a friend who's fairly wealthy, and he's like. I think Elon's raising for his new AI company, right? He's like, "Hey, I just want in on that." Or sometimes you get like, "Hey, somebody just wants to invest in OpenAI," and somehow you get allocation around. They don't need to know much more because they just see OpenAI in the news all the time. And so, as long as the terms are the same as investment, or sometimes what people do, and I think AngelList is less common because I don't think it does secondaries. But sometimes, like, oh, I have secondaries in. OpenAI at a twenty percent discount. Let's say, like people would just blindly do that deal because they've already done the work on their end. They already know they want to invest, or it's a late stage private deal. They're like, you know, 
whatever company is, Airtable, or whatever the hot company was back in the day before it went public, that's another way to do a syndicate where it's just so well known what the company is and everybody like linear notion or there's certain companies that have always fit that mode and you're just like, hey, it's a secondary uh, discount or it's the same as the last price and people do it. Um, to, to your second question around how do you get these allocations deals, there's two or three strategies. And so I categorize in a couple points. One is to, there's the first mover strategy which is like before it becomes the hot deal that everybody knows about, you're helping the founder early. Maybe you're making an introduction. Again, early in my career, that happened multiple times where I made an introduction that became their seed lead or their series A lead. And automatically when the deal closes, you're going to get allocation. The founder like, hey, you made an introduction that led to my entire round. How can I help you back? I'm like, oh, you know, can we have yeah. a scenario? <laughs> Like, again, this is super early in my career. There is a syndicate that I remember, and we don't really do that anymore at Liquid 2, but it ended up being like 100K extra that's worth 10 million today. Like just off one like founder being like, yeah, you helped me, here's an extra allocation. So these can be extremely lucrative. Um, mm -hmm. The other common way of doing it is after the fact. So maybe there is a strong lead or everybody knows it's a hot deal and you come to a founder and it's like, hey, how can I help you in a unique way? And for customers, employee introductions, you help them in a way and they're like, hey, what's the way I can return the favor? And a lot of times that's your allocation. So you can either go beforehand and there's a lot of times where there is an expectation you commit money, but especially as an angel investor or somebody who runs a syndicate, a lot of times they might just put you and hold a position for you until the deal gets done. Because especially if it's a price round, it's not like they can close your capital immediately. If it's a safe round, it's different. Um, sometimes you can be like, hey, I need time to get the money. And during that time, the round might get done. So you can come earlier, you can come late. But realize if you're coming late, the expectations of you being able to add value is really high. That being said, I always look at when I look at VC is value add per dollar check size. And most people who run syndicates or angel investors are not asking for a big allocation. Like I, I've seen this in multiple rounds where an angel come in and ask for incredibly small allocation. And the founder just thinks if this person helps me with one or two things as one employee, as one customer, it's actually worth it. And so for them adding this person for a 5K check, a 10K check, is really nothing. A syndicate might ask for more. I think to do a syndicate, you need at least 100,000. It might be a bigger expectation, especially in seed round. But you'd be surprised. You see these cap tables that are massive because as long as you can add value, it almost matters a little bit less. Totally. I wonder, like, um, let's say if I find a deal and then it seems like the founder have a really good network and then are able to connected themselves to um really basically the like uh basically really like um famous like vc funds or whatever so i so you make a bet and then but like i feel like it's really hard to get conviction to convince 20 other people to <laughs> invest in your syndicate because i feel like if um i um excuse me if i fork up this thing like for myself that's fine but like i feel like if i do this to my friends or like people that have like a lot of trust in me and this thing goes to goes terribly i will be really really sad because that's like a one-off deal that's kind of supposed to demonstrate your ability to get into the open AI of, of the world but like you get into this deal so i wonder like how do you kind of pick the first couple deals to i guess um to like identify them before everybody else or kind of having 
the conviction to push things forward? I think there's two separate questions here. The first one is around like getting friends to invest. I always tell like, and I'm not always because I'm fun, but like even I tell people to invest, I'm like, assume you're going to have to do multiple deals. Like if you have $100,000 budgeted for a deal, it's better to have $100,000 budget for five deals because you're going to get it wrong at least mm -hmm. once. And it sucks if it's the first one because you lose all your money, but it could be the second one. It could be the third one. But if you do, maybe it's 10 I Again, I'd have to look at the stats behind it because I think there's some numbers that explain the failure rates. But you should be doing more deals in one. So even when you ask somebody to join a syndicate, sometimes like, okay, I want to invest in deals. Like, okay, don't invest in this deal unless you intend to invest in the next five one. It's just... Now, you personally, how, how do you get conviction? I think a lot of times, especially in early deals, it's a space that you know better than anybody else. Mm -hmm. And so when that happens, your conviction comes from the fact that even if a VC is really good at diligence, they're most likely a generalist mm -hmm. versus you are most likely specialized on, like, let's say there's a deal around podcasting. You're going to know that better than 99% of VCs. It's just going to happen. Or like writing something or like, yeah, I mean, podcasting, there's a couple of podcasts after that. You're going to know it better. Like your diligence will be stronger. Or it's a friend that's starting a new company. You're going to know that person for five to 10 years more than a VC that can diligence and make calls for, you know, maximum of a couple of weeks. Like I remember when my previous co-founder was starting a company, um, I'd known her for a decade plus. And it was in, you know, autonomous simulation tech. I'm not the world's expert in autonomy and simulation tech. Somebody else is. But I know my co-founder better than anybody else. And that's, you know, $5 billion company today. And so, like, and we invested in a seed round. But again, like, that's a great example. I'm going to know my co-founder over 10 years. And so have that data set. A VC is going to know simulation tech better than I will ever another and again i'm a vc too but another vc is an expert in simulation tech well that but i'm going to make the better decision in that case mm. because i'm going to get to better conviction because i know the founder and so there's going to be data sets spaces people you know that you're just going to know better than anybody else in the world and you're going to have conviction the other thing is again i wouldn't be too tough so i think there's a lot of pressure sometimes like hey let me get the first investment right Assume that you're also going to make mistakes and be okay with that. Like, yeah, I'm going to do five investments and I just have to budget that enough. Or I have to make sure I have enough credibility with my LP syndicate partners, whoever it is, or VC intros. Like, forget even like, uh, like doing a deal. When you introduce somebody, like let's say you meet a founder, you introduce it to your VC friends. Not every introduction will pan out. And if you go into the mentality of like, I'm not going to make these introductions because I don't want to embarrass myself, pretty soon you're never going to make it because it's never going to be a perfect deal. But I can't tell me how many times friends that introduced me, we've passed. We're like, wow, this is way better. Like the way you made it, it was like, oh, I don't know if this is a good deal, but I'm just sending it to you. Just want to share. I'm like, no, this is amazing. Like, you just don't know. So build up on our trust that you can do at least four or five. And if you can't, like, and maybe four or five isn't even too small, let's say 10. If 10 can't be good, then you have an issue. But one out of 10, Sometimes just the odds of venture. Like if one out of 10 companies became a unicorn, that's insanely good. I think the industry average is closer to like the 2%. Like, so again, the, the hits, it's a hits-driven business. Nobody knows when they're going to find the really next big company. Totally. I wonder, is there any 
like throughout your career, I feel like you definitely observe a lot more than me. I wonder like what are things that so let, let's say if everything goes right, that's amazing, right? Like everybody become, I don't know, father of SpaceX or something. That's amazing. But the, the problem is like a lot of times like any, I feel like probably many solo GP or like angel investors are all going to have the question in the back of their mind as what if everything goes wrong? So I wonder in your career, like yesterday I talked about this with Paige as well. So basically um, Paige was saying, uh, there's like 50% of first bomb doesn't race to the second round. Um, so I wonder like if everything goes wrong, like how do you kind of go from there? So obviously like yesterday we chat about like, you know, um, we should think about like, you know, multiple deals and then, you know, three funds and like as like a starting point. So I wonder like, how do you, like deal with these kind of like self-doubt and how do you kind of like push through this? And also as well as like introducing people to other people, um, like how would you go about the introduction? Do you talk about like, oh, by the way, like I have, like I invest in this thing and then you push it to friends or do you push it to friends and then if this thing seems like well received and then you kind of like chat with the founder to invest a little bit yeah i mean i think the first question is like what happens when things go wrong all the time like i think you know i can speak both as this as a founder and as a vc like companies shut down all the time and sometimes the second company they start as massive like people pivot like retool was a pivot it's one of the most successful companies today, like Unicorn Company. Uh, Brex was a pivot. So things going wrong, like when a company so like an idea is so bad, you're like, I gotta change a completely different idea. I think Brex was originally a VR idea to you know a credit card. That's a pretty big difference. So I think it just so happens Silicon Valley is very forgiving in a lot of ways. I think a lot of times founders themselves start something and they become better founders over time. So I don't think like in some ways you must want to fail early in your life so you can learn from that. I think if you don't learn anything and you go down the same path, that's a mistake. But if you learn something, I think that's like, it's just the journey of a founder. Like I was doing high school projects that fail and again, I didn't have any VC dollars from a fund perspective that happens too. Like I forget which famous hedge fund manager, like, I think the first time they were running money, they just, they couldn't beat the S&P 500. They were flat or down in a market that was pretty frothy. Yeah. People who manage assets can fail too. I think, again, it depends somewhat on how you fail. What were you wrong about? Were you mm -hmm. wrong about the investment thesis? Were you not a good investor? And depending on that, you can determine what the best next steps are. Some people aren't cut out to invest. Like people sometimes love being a VC, but for whatever reason, maybe they're too nice or they just don't have the knack for it or they're tough at due diligence. I don't know what it is. Like, I think you choose to focus on other aspects of venture. Like let's say you're really bad at picking, but maybe you're really good at sourcing then just be part of the deal flow team where you just get a lot of deals. Like there's different aspects of it, but I would say you need to ex understand where you fail. And it is totally possible that somebody takes a couple of failures they come become, before they become a great investor. And that's just the learning process. It's totally possible that they will never be a great investor. I think 
it's up to the person themselves to figure that part out. Like that's that's how it is. Um, on the like bringing friends deals, do investments. It's a stylistic thing. I think a lot of people are like, hey, I have strong conviction myself. I don't care if anybody else is. I want to commit money. And even if you commit money, depending on the round, sometimes you're not required to immediately wire the money. It depends. If it's a safe note, you are. But if it's not a safe note and it's a more priced round, sometimes you'll wait anyways. So like, I do think founders respect more the people who are like, hey, I'm in, not conditional on other people being in. But depending on your financial situation, your uh, tolerance or risk, a lot of people are like, hey, I want to help the founder. I want to introduce it to my friends. I want to do all the things, but I can't commit money yet. And it's just a part of investing. And again, I think founders prefer to people like, hey, I have conviction regardless of who else is in, but nobody dings you as much as you might think because there's a lot more people who do that than people think. Actually, most people follow. Mm-hmm. Totally. Okay. So I'm sorry. I like drag on the first topic for so long. So um, the second way to start your own fund is like scouting for a big fund, right? So I wonder how do you look for these opportunities since, um, or like how did, how do you let these opportunities find you? So a couple of things. One, you have to think about which funds have scouts. Like it, it wasn't public. This venture capital having scouts was not public for a long time. And then mm-hmm. I, I forget which news article leaked about Sequoia's program. And it was pretty clear afterwards. And I remember actually the entire list leaked or huge chunks of the list leaked. And it was like the professor at CS50 at Harvard was a scout. Like it was surprising how many, I think when the Dropbox founders was a scout, like it was, it was Sam Altman was a scout at one point. It was an extensive list that, people were surprised by um again i don't know how that news article got a hold of that list or how this all happened but it's interesting to see it is way more common now than ever before it's still not super public like you do sometimes see on linkedin now even the title sequoia scout or in that like i I, I just yeah i forget how many funds have these different scout programs but they definitely exist number one is finding out who has these programs Because if you don't know about program, if they shut down the program or it doesn't exist or it's a very specific type of person, it's just not going to be as helpful. Mm-hmm. Number two is getting close to the partners that can make that decision. And again, every firm's different. Some people have like, like you know, it's part, each partner has the ability to create scouts. Some people it's run through a very specific program. And three is like show expertise. Like the scout program is not designed for traditional venture deal flow. It's to see the stuff that nobody else sees in a lot of ways. So we see a lot of scouts being like, like I guarantee there's a scout at OpenAI now, at least one firm, if not multiple scouts at OpenAI. <laughs> you want to know who's leaving OpenAI. So if you're part of the right networks, that can be really, really helpful, especially if it's a network, they don't, they don't have coverage job. If they're like, look, we have multiple partners who former OpenAI or former Stripe, they don't need that coverage. But mm-hmm. if you're a part of a talented group of people, like, and they don't have access to that group people, they'll really want to see it. Or if you have expertise in a certain space that people don't know about. So develop an edge. Like, and this is again true for investment in general, like especially in the hedge fund spaces, like what's your edge, right? Venture mm-hmm. capital, I say, what's your edge? Same scout, what's your edge that makes them want to recruit you to be a scout for them? Is I think a question you have to ask yourself, right? And for everybody is different. For sure. I wonder, let's say, like, if I have friends in OpenAI or Stripe or whatever unicorn company, um, what kind of characteristics should I look for to, like, 
I guess like how do like I guess how do you how do you pick the friend that to become a scout for you as an angel investor or someone writing small checks? I think again like the things you can't really force a lot of times just friends with somebody, but usually when you talk to them, they're the ones being like this person's leaving the company to start. Like when you have a conversation with these people, you can tell the people who are like like just know what's going on within a company. Versus the people who are like more like hey, I'm heads down working, and again, there's like in some ways sometimes the person who has down working is the right person to start a company. Like they, they actually might be a better founder than a scout, but within every company, there tends to be people who sort of know what's going on, who's going to leave, who's interested in startups, who's not. Um, if I remember at Google, there's a couple of people who always knew they were very involved in ex-Googlers. Like they just knew what was going on around in the company, alumni or, or groups. It's not really a specific character, but they're usually respected and they just happen to know stuff. And as you talk to them, you tend to figure that out because they just bring up conversations like, oh, this person's leaving to start a new company. They just tend to know. I have a friend who was, you know, without naming names, a sales guy at a, at a very well-known company. And he would just know, oh, this person started going, he wasn't technical. And he'd be like, how do you know all the technical people? Like, he's like, yeah, I just became friends with all of them. So <laughs> you never know who that person is. They don't have to be super senior with the company. They don't have to be a good engineer themselves. They just have to know what's happening around the company. But I think another thing is like, you know, there's so many people who leave these companies. They have their own, like, I know like the famous, like it's like Lyft Syndicate or like whatever. Like, yeah. so basically like a, um, syndicate within their company or airbnb syndicate and uh i think it's called air angel anyway so so there's like company yeah, internal syndicates and um but i feel like they those are, are often good people the people, the people yeah who run those syndicates are, often really good knowledge the people who run like uh, uber has a syndicate air angels is the uh, airbnb syndicate there's a bunch that are really good here. yeah but I, th I think the problem for angel investors or like solo gps is like you can't invest in every deal, right? Like uh, you don't have like the enough budget to invest in like everyone who come out of open eye, but venture is such a numbers game. Like you never really know who it's gonna hit or like um, it's really hard to tell who is the most promising person. Um, and you sometimes don't really have the access to everybody because you only know this one friend, uh, he or she have like 10 other friends top, right? Like, and, and then maybe one of them goes to our company. And like, I wonder how do you kind of like go from there? Let's say, you know, someone from this company and they kindly share their deal flow or like their friends updates with you. And, but you, at this point, you only know one or two deals from this company. How do you make a bet or how do you kind of like extend your reach from there? So that's, I think like, you don't need to in some ways. If you see the one good deal leaving OpenAI this year, you don't need to see 20 deals. Mm -hmm. Now, unfortunately, it's tough to build good investor judgment without seeing a lot of stuff. Because once you mm -hmm. see enough stuff, you're like, oh, this is a top quartile deal. Because it's really clear when you meet the founders how they pitch and stuff, and your data gets better and better. So I guess there's like two or three things there. One, let's say when you're building up your network in, in different spaces, ask them sometimes, like, hey, who's the other smart person in your network or who else should I be talking to? And they'll introduce you to other people, especially if they're pretty social. And two is the acceptance that you will never see everything. 
I think when there was a time when Silicon Valley was small enough, it's just not that small. Like you will never see everything, but this industry is not about seeing everything. It's about getting it right. Like you could see one deal and it might be the best deal. And that's just happens to be the deal you, you do. And so everybody has a different way of playing the venture game. Some people think, look, I'm going to meet five companies and that's it, but they're going to be the best because they only come through interests I really, really trust. Or something like, yeah, I'm going to meet hundreds of companies, but I'm going to have to find the best within them and I need more data to do that. So mm -hmm. if you just so happen to be like, I don't know, friends with the CTO of OpenAI and they're like, this is the best person I know, like, <laughs> you really need to know anybody else? Not really. Like, you know, like, they're like, okay, that's the best, right? Like, there's less need for that. You're not trying to you don't need to find every unicorn in Silicon Valley. You just need to find one and double down and really be able to get leverage in that. That is my point. For sure. Speaking of finding a unicorn, let's say you meet a founder. So like for angel investing, so a lot of people's suggestion is like you put in the same amount of money into um, X amount of deal, let's say 50 deal or whatever. So basically um, like that's one of the strategies people are doing. And then, but as angel investor, because it's really hard for you to put all your egg into one basket, um, how do you balance the portfolio construction for yourself if you're trying to build a track record? And from the perspective of like building a good track record so that you can raise a fund um, or building a good portfolio company so you can make some money? I think again, it depends on your goals. Like if you want to you want to be a VC having a little bit more diversified portfolio helps if you let's say you're a really really good picker and you're like hey i put all my money into one company and it became a billion company people don't know if you're just a great picker or you just got lucky once so it's like hey i have four or five companies two of them are unicorns three of them you know raise a series a that being said i think look i historically based on the data sets i've seen like you need a significant size it doesn't need to be that large and you know you tend to diversify there it's usually portfolio like again it's like a lot of it comes from portfolio management which is a you know endowment thing which is like hey diversify diversification is always good that being said i've definitely seen people like look i have strong conviction i want to back the truck on one company and that's just how i'm gonna do it i'm gonna make a ton of money myself and some days i forget a way to pitch lps and i don't think there's anything wrong with that i think like when you over-optimize for some future of like, hey, I want to raise a fund someday, a lot of times things don't go according to plan versus like, hey, if you are just a type of person like, I believe in one company, great. But that's not sort of the VC's job. It is like you definitely see certain partners. They do very few deals, but every deal they do is a hit. Um, but a more traditional VC angel would probably do a little bit more deals and be a little bit more spread out because again, let's say you do the one great deal, maybe you do open AI, great, it's a great rate, but are you just not going to do deals the rest of your life? So ten venture tends to favor a little bit more of a bigger portfolio. That being said, again, if you're like, hey, the deal's open AI, I'm gonna never have to work again. I'm just that convicted. Then you should do it. Like you should always like. I think sometimes people try to optimize their career five to ten years down the line, and I think that's smart and the right thing. But oftentimes, like you'll figure out the way to talk about that when the time comes, right? Like, let's say your one deal is open AI, you can figure out a way. It's like, hey, I'm gonna find the next ten AI deals because I did such a great job. Instead of being like, well, my portfolio is not diversified. It's like, well, who cares at that point in time? For sure. I wonder, like, if you, so if you like, um, go about 
okay so let's talk about like building relationship with lps right since like um many so you have multiple funds and um i wonder at what point do you start talking to people like so there's like a couple things um i was reading this article um from like um these are from software ventures of like asking like yeah. this is not about her but like it's like a, well it's an article she wrote or like she got interviewed by someone so basically she said, start with your network for all obvious reasons, like VCCO, LPs, and share what you're doing as intros to institutional investors they think may be interested in learning more about, um, or yeah, basically learning more or hearing more. So I wonder, so like in terms of like building the network, how do you, like, let's say if I met an LP at a dinner or something, like what is my next step to build a relationship with him or her? Because if your LP is like a bigger fund, uh, they're sure they're like interests probably guiding your deal flow. But if you are uh, just like meeting institutional LPs, like how do you kind of like keep the relationship going? I like to keep them updated with less frequency but at the same time like especially with the institutional LP, a lot of times we're like i don't want to bother them and to be honest that's their job and part of their job is knowing which funds are coming up and data across like the spectrum and a lot of times like you can you could give them two sets of data one on companies that are coming like especially a lot of these big institutional LPs, they have direct investment vehicles they want to know how their underlying portfolio is doing like because they maybe you know their investor in Dreesen is something else but you know how the company's actually doing like well yeah you know it's marked up but it's actually facing issues so they still want to know you don't want to do it so frequently because again venture commitments are pretty infrequent it's not like it happens all the time at the same time like i don't think anybody should be embarrassed like hey here's an update this is how like a lot of times we did this when we were evaluating our fund one was really good so we'd be like hey here's how our fund one is doing just so you can track us and know how we're doing and this is a good sign of how we invest and what we do and so that's an easy way to do it sometimes it's just market data like hey this is what's happening across seed that i'm seeing that nobody else is so usually like again we're a unique fund or like a lot of times we would get lps asking about y combinator because we spend a lot of time there um but you could be a you know you have your own fund in um deep tech you're like hey this is what i'm seeing in deep tech they're interested in that look we all want to know what's going on in the future nobody has answers or like you're in crypto and you're like okay all these things are happening let me give you an update just on what's happening in the market that's great information for them they might not invest in your fund but they're like here there's another four or five funds we want to invest in sometimes i like there's people who not aren't even invested in my fund, they'll call me off for due diligence on other fund managers. Like, hey, this is what I'm seeing in the market because I see stuff. And so maintaining a relationship a lot of times is just like, how can you deliver value add for them and not be too bothersome down that? But yeah, you, part of your job is following up. And I think nobody, like one of the things I found really great is like assume that you're going to be the next great fund manager. It's not a waste of their time to spend time with you. If you have the confidence in yourself, they're like, they probably just don't know it yet. And so your job yeah. is to show them um, I love that. I feel like this is a really good insights or like, and you know, sharing insights, sharing updates and kind of like providing value in some sort. Um, but I want, I wonder if you are trying to build, if you're trying to re maintain relationship with other, um, 
investors and like beset like sending deal flow what are other ways to kind of like engage with people to add value to kind of keep the um conversation warm as like because another pro problem is like let's say if you're trying to um stand in front of like other lps for who invest in other people's fund but like what's the motivation for them to kind of like helping you make the introduction um if you guys are kind of in like a similar category and also i feel like the any asking anyone for introduction is kind of like um i don't want to burden people with my ask so every time i think about it i have to think oh if there's a unique angle but on the other hand like you know how getting LPs is kind of like a numbers game, I assume, like, because I was hearing people, yesterday Paige was talking about, like, 1,700 LPs, and then she closed, like, 120, so I feel like that's a good rate as, like, you know, it's not bad, and, like, but and you have to have, like, 1,700 people to pitch to, that's, like, oh my god, like, that's a really <laughs> big ask for all your friends to do that and then if you ask like let's say five friends and the one friends gave you like two contact or whatever that's still like you know a lot of people you have to ask you have to ask thousands of people to get to that 1700 so I wonder like how would you go about approaching this mega list of people a bunch of like you know obviously you brought up deal flow is probably one of the default ways but outside of that like I've seen people exchange LPs. Like you have some LPs, they have some LPs, and some people are like, "Hey, look, why don't we like just trade wow. off an LP?" Especially if you've closed one, they might be like, "Hey, these are four or five LPs you should be talking to." I'm like, "Hey, this." Especially a lot of times, like one, sometimes strategies are different. Some LPs are like, "Hey, I don't invest in first-time funds." Some LPs have programs that invest in first-time funds. Mm -hmm. I think people think of like, you know, look, we're in a place where capital is pretty frequent. Um, that these people are trying to deploy. I mean, again, I don't know about this current market, but in general, the last 10 years, LPs have wanted to deploy capital, just looking for the right manager to deploy in. It's not a zero-sum game. Um, so if you introduce them from the grade, they invest, and they might give you more credit, more want to invest in your firm next. Um, another one is just data. Like, look, we all want to know where the future is headed. It's mm -hmm. not clear. Like, like, there's tons and tons of AI investments going on. Is AI its own bubble? I don't know. I don't think it is based on what I'm seeing, but it could be given the amount of capital that's going for. It feels a little bit like their crypto days where everybody's throwing money there. <laughs> it could be a game changer. In some ways, crypto hasn't lived up to all of its hype and it looks like AI is, but AI could not. You know, it could just like more. If you have more data than anybody else, you're like, hey, these are all the AI deals that are going on. These are the ones I think is over. Like, people just want to know because it, it just influences their decision making. Um, I think everybody has. Different, like like this, like you're doing a podcast. I think that really helps people build up. You know, you got a massive following. Like that's a way to give back to somebody, right? Like an LP or another fund manager. Like, hey, look, let me make a couple introductions for you. I want to be featuring your podcast. Whatever it is, like it's just like the ability to help other people is only limited in some ways by your imagination, right? There's so much. Or another way is, let's say, LP or another VC, they might need to hire somebody. And you might be like, hey, I've talked to more people than anybody else. I think these are four or five people who are the best up-and-coming VCs, founders, whatever it is, or you know, founders exit who wants to be a VC. No, that could be helpful. Or a VC who wants to be an LP or you know, somebody who's at like maybe a big endowment who wants to switch. Who knows? Like, so I think there's unlimited ways you can help somebody. I think you don't want to be too egregious where you're bothering a lot of time, but 
a lot of times just finding out from them. Like sometimes I'm like, hey, I really need to hire somebody or I'm really trying to build up my public presence or, you know, I'm looking for LPs. Do you have, like, there's four or five different ways. Um, yeah. I'm like literally taking notes. I love this. And I wonder how do you build the insights? Um, is that just by like, it's a numbers game and you talk to like a thousand people or like you go out there and then research a particular subject? Because I feel like as a, Angel investor, you kind of have to be a generalist because you don't really have, well, I guess you kind of also like, so there's two ways people go, right? Like one way is people go with whatever they can invest in because not everybody have all the deal flow. And then on the other hand, it's like some people just become an expert in cybersecurity or like something that's like a super specific thing. And in terms of picking your niche, um, how do you go about it? Because the most like money making niche or like the most like um promising niche may not be your interest but on the other hand like if you're in the business of making people money you need to pick a sector that's kind of promising to a degree so or like um can be changed by technology and like have the potential to become like a big wave right so i wonder how do you pick a niche that's kind of both fitting into your personal interests and like also can potentially make you a lot of money. Not you, but like also LPs and like friends and everybody who invests in you. I do think it's talking to a lot of people. I think it's looking at research. I think it's looking at public companies. I think like, again, the ad craze is real in a lot of ways because open ads doing a billion in revenue, right? Like that's something that like, at the top of market influence, and when you saw direct consumer companies taking off, when Facebook was taking off, and then all this gaming stuff, like you can detect trends pretty early on. And like, hey, there's something massive. Sometimes you make a leap of faith. You're like, hey, you know, Apple is launching um, their new vision, right? Mm-hmm. Does that mean there's going to be a whole revolution around VR, AR? Maybe. And sometimes you'll spend time do working on it now because in the hopes that that becomes the next major platform. Mm-hmm. So I think it can be a leap of faith. I think what you do is combine lots of data that is publicly available in our news articles everywhere else. Like it's well known, OpenAI is doing over a billion in revenue. Mm-hmm. With talking to some really smart people about where they think the future is headed, and like, hey, what are you seeing? Where are going? And where are the smartest founders going? And then you combine it with your own logical leaps that you're like, you know what? Like I, I remember a friend who was studying like self-driving cars. He's like, hey, self-driving cars will change fundamentally how real estate is done because now you can mm-hmm. live further. Like, that's a really interesting thesis. Is it true? Hard to say. Nobody really knows. But you can make these logical leaps and hope you're right. Um, yeah, you can look at Bitcoin and maybe see the potential of Ethereum early on and you would have made a killing. Like People have done that before. So it's a combination of public data, private data via talking to people and just your own assumptions about where you see the future of the world. I'm literally, I'm literally taking notes. I feel like I learned so much. Um, uh-huh. I really like, I, I feel like I, I wonder, so if you're, I guess after you pick a niche, like in terms of reaching out to the LPs within this niche, how do you do your research? Would you go on PitchBook to see who invests in XYZ fund that you've been tracking or how do you build this mental map like of who is in this sector that's doing well? And like, and plus like who has what LP, like how would you go about this research journey? 
a lot of times people like again i think lps are less public than vcs are but you would see like i'll use the vc example founder the vc i feel like it's getting more popular like for it's people. getting more popular i've but seen i'll use the starting this like lp yeah. politics but yeah yeah but I'll use the founder example. Like founders, always, how do I find it? It's like actually, the good VCs are very public. Um, they're on Twitter. They're mm -hmm. on like writing mm -hmm. blogs about it because they want the inbound deal flow to come to them, right? Like, think about um, in recent now with American uh, dynamicism, right? Um, mm -hmm. They're trying to like find these defense deals. Like Catherine Boyle is super public about it, and so. You see this again and again, they'll make it easier. I think you're starting to see this on OP side. They're really public about what their thesis is because they know the best fund managers will come to them. If they're like, hey, you know, I want to find emerging managers. Like, um, like Winter Mead has something that's really great for that. Well, and he's really public about it. On to um, this show later. But oh, anyway. awesome. But he's a good example. Like he's coming to show because he wants to make it clear that's what he's looking for, right? Or, or again, I, I guess I have to wait to watch this show to see what he's interested in. But like people are pretty public about it, I think, um, about what they're interested in more and more. So it's not like you have to force it. You just have to read what their public statements are. You can sometimes look at what they've invested in, which funds. It's not always the best because sometimes somebody be like, hey, if you have coverage, maybe they'll do like an industrial or an AI fund. And like, actually, I just wanted to do one AI fund. I don't want to do more, but I am looking for something else in biotech. Like sometimes they have that. But yeah, you can look at previous funds they're interacted with. You can ask around and sometimes you just send them a super easy email. And you're like, I don't want to take up your time, but what kind of funds are you interested in? Versus like a lot of people want to pitch them. And you're like, hey, I won't even pitch you. Like a lot of times like you'll see a institutional people like, hey, I don't invest until fund three. You mm -hmm. pitching fund one, you might want to just share the data, but like, hey, I won't waste your time with a full pitch, but here's my pitch deck just so you have it for reference, you know? So mm -hmm. a lot of times you can just straight up ask them. And especially if you keep that, like a lot of times I think, both VCs and, you know, anybody who controls capital, they don't want to sit for an entire pitch if they already know it's not a good fit, but they might be willing to have a quick conversation, right? Or just give you the data set. I wonder, I love this. Like, I feel like this is like, you're making this so much more accessible than people may think because people think it's a really sophisticated process, but it is a really sophisticated process. But I feel like you make it sounds like, you know, people with, the right amount of effort putting into building their own knowledge database and then like sharing this to people can have some sort of advantage and yeah. i wonder yeah keep going sorry so i was just gonna say this real quick just hearing what you talked about with pages story it's a lot like sales people try to make it sound like oh this is a big deal it's like fundraising mm -hmm. no it's like sales sales is people have done for years it's a pipeline management system like mm -hmm. like once you equate it to sales and it's a volume game you're pretty much like oh this is not like it's not anywhere it's just like any other sales thing mm -hmm. um but i feel like yesterday i was at a, like this um investor dinner and then like um someone told me like he is a um, AI founder and then now he has an AI fund. And then he was talking about like um, how hard it is to raise a fund compared to like a raising for his own company. Mm -hmm. You have done both too. So you have raised a lot of funds and then you have raised for multiple companies. And so I wonder what's your experience on compared to like raising, what's the differences between like raising for your company compared to funds and why like raising a funds is so hard. It's because look, 
usually when you raise for a company, only one person can invest in the company. So there's some sense of urgency of like, hey, let's like if somebody leads the deal, nobody else can lead the deal. Funds, mm -hmm. yes, you can have an anchor LP, but mug funds. So there's a very little pressure to move early, both with companies and with VC funds. Like the first money in, the last money in is usually very similar. It's both invested in the company slash fund. And mm -hmm. unlike companies, there's a lot less pressure to be early in the system. LPs also have a lot more power. So these, it just takes longer, right? You compare something like YC Days, where it's like, hey, there's a rush. Everybody wants to get the capital in. It's seed investing versus like you're raising a $100 million fund. It's like, well, you know, maximum, like most LPs have limits in how much of a check they can be. So maximum $20 million. So unless you're $80 million raised, mm -hmm. there's no pressure for you to put in a check. So there's a lot less pressure to be early when it comes to fund investing. Um, LPs just tend to be slower than VCs. It's just the nature of the business. Like, you know, they want to make sure that they don't invest in a lot of funds, right? Like, mm -hmm. a VC fund has to do a lot. There's a lot more competition. And for a long time, LPs didn't have a lot of competition. I think that the market is shifting and even LPs, like, you know, like higher and higher up the capital stack, you're having more and more competition. But for a while, LPs had all the power. And again, that was true for VCs for years ago. VCs had all the power. There weren't a lot of VCs. So they could just take their time on any deal for a long time. Um, so I think there's a slowness factor that founders change to VCs. At the same time, like, like in some ways, like you could do less, uh, like the, there's different stages to like fund. You could be a fund manager with very little capital. There, there's some parts that where raising a fund is actually simpler, right? Like there's less like, oh, allocation squeezing. How do I fit everybody in? It's much more like, hey, we can take everybody. There's a much more like when it's towards and around this kind of easiness of like, hey, which actually is true for venture too. As a by and far fund manager, just through the dynamics of the LP base and the fact there's less urgency is tougher. But it's just it's just a you're raising for a very different thing, right? Like mm -hmm. sometimes like a company, like a lot of times funds can start with half the capital. Let's say you're trying to raise 15 million, you have 25, you can start your work already. A lot of times for companies, you're like, hey, either I gotta raise the A or I fail. Like it's not in between because people won't give you half the money because the runway's too tight or they need a lead. And there's less, there's sometimes, especially with companies, more of a need for a lead investor versus for fund managers, not really that concept. There's sometimes the concept of an anchor, but even that, like you can have not a single lead and you'd be totally fine. Mm. I wonder how would you do the mental map or like, you know, like, VCs will do a mapping of the whole AI space. I don't know how many times I've seen, like, they post about, like, oh, here's, like, um, the market map for, yeah, like, um, I don't know, healthcare AI. And then there's, like, 400 companies logo into one sheet. Um, how do you do the research for if you're raising a fund? Um, because a lot of these information are kind of private. And then, like, um, you can talk to so many people, but there's just like too much, like, I guess like the inf information is kind of like um, fractionalized, uh, fractionalized. So it's really hard to like put together something that's like really come like a list, like, but like when you do the research for VCs, you can go to the Midas list or Forbes 30 and 30, like, or some sort of place that with everybody. Um, is there something happening in the LP space besides like you go to pitch book to look at who invests in this firm and like how? how do you go about building like a resources like that? 
for yourself? I do think it's pitch book. I think it's talking to other fund managers, like who are your LPs. I think there's some big conferences, uh, like the upfront one, race conference, where you can meet all the LPs. Um, yeah, I don't think it's as easy as companies where you have CB inside Crunchbase. Um, I do think it definitely exists. Like people have, talk, mm -hmm. especially people have been around a lot. Like I'm sure at the big funds, if you find an IR person there, they at one point have interacted with every big LP. It is a smaller scene when they all go to the same conferences. The good thing is once, like like the family office is a good example, like certain regions, all the family offices know each other because they go to the same conferences. So one thing that can be helpful is like once you get one family office, like I remember in Texas, we got one family office that knew all the other family offices. In Chicago, there's a family office that knows all the Chicago family office. So like getting in front of somebody and seeing who's around them is really helpful. Um, I don't think there's as much of a peer list, but I think PitchBook has a lot of it. I think there's certain things that focus on family offices that probably has a lot of data sometimes like really big lps have to be public you know about it like alpers and stuff the one the like teachers endowment stuff like that are pretty public about what they're doing because mm -hmm. they just have to disclose this mm. i wonder so how so i know that like calpers they invest in beezers like so sapphire yeah others. like i wonder how does it work so like like the bigger like institutional funds would invest in other institutional funds and then invest in like GPs, like, or how does it like, so well, like, would you just go approach like people from CalSTRS or like, do you, how would you like, I guess like, what is the ecosystem like in the LP side? So I think the example you're giving, like it's just a really big, entity let's say like you know when you talk about sovereign wealth funds and stuff they just can't mm -hmm. deploy into seed funds because it's just they're just too big that they won't move the needle they're like it's not worth our time to write a 10 million dollar check because we're managing several billion mm -hmm. like uh, i think how, how big calpers is but it's you know like i'm just looking up now it's like it's annual budget it's like 1.9 billion like it's it's a massive massive and it's one of the biggest pension funds in america so in this case they're investing in a fund of funds Sapphire mm. is a fund of funds. It, so it then, you know, it then directs its funds. I think Sapphire also has a direct arm. So it's a direct plus a fund of funds that invests in smaller funds. So in that case, it's just a different, like Capris is just massive pension fund. It can only invest in really big funds. It's probably not seed funds. It's just not worth the endowment's time, the pension fund's time. Um, so you get that. Sometimes you get LPs that are really, really big, sovereign wealth funds, pension funds that are so massive that they can't deploy effectively into seed funds. So they'll pay a fund of funds to do it. Mm. So that, that's that's a unique situation. You don't see that a lot. A lot of like, a lot of like, yeah, people who just like they don't want to outsource the idea of finding individual managers, and they're still on the LP side. They're just different than their LP of another LP that that becomes a director investor is that they're just too big to deploy that kind of capital effectively. So they'd rather give a fund of funds, you know, 200 million and be like, hey, split this among, you know, 10, 20 million dollar checks. What are the funds that are investing in solo GPs? I know Sandena, Greer, or um, Horsley Bridge. And like, so I don't really know, like, how, how, is there like a list of these I don't know if there's a list, unfortunately. I think a lot of times when you look at this stuff, there's a couple of institutional ones like you just got, you probably know better than me, but the other one would be mostly family offices because there's a remarkable flexibility in family offices. So I find most 
first time filing solo GPs are backed by family offices, but I do agree with like Sonana's one of none. There's, there's a couple of those horses bridge. I, again, I don't, I'm probably not an expert on that one. For sure. Uh, no, well, I feel like you're a lot more knowledgeable than me, but I just, yeah, no. I, I'm I think sorry. You've I don't to a lot of people. <laughs> you are so smart. I'm sorry. But like, I feel like even, I feel like, cause in the past we most times speak about like, I don't know, like from, um, more like on a more personal level, but I feel like yeah. I just I just literally have a this is like a crash course of what's happening. No, um, hopefully something's useful here. I always enjoy talking to you, and you're so knowledgeable about like like what you said about the SOGP. Like I didn't know that because you know, I didn't know the SOGP fund. So no, I feel like you. Oh God, I feel like you. I just like learned so much from our conversation and um what is next for you because right now we have four minutes i want to make sure the audience follow you and then you know like tell us where to find you and then like how can we kind of like add value to you that's so kind of you to say i mean like feel free to add me on linkedin or follow me on linkedin or on twitter um michael and ma on twitter um i like the handle why why is my <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't get the follow one, so or the one without the end. Um, look, you know, I continue to be both a founder and VC on the VC side. Always talking to great founders is really helpful on the founder side. Like anybody interested in crypto specifically, DAS, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, yeah, that's about it. Otherwise, I love talking to smart people, and, and I'm trying to figure out stuff on my end too, and try to learn more. Um, you are too humble. Um, I, I don't know why I didn't give the audience a little intro of you, but I post this in my, um, in my like little groups of like people who listen oh. to the podcast and stuff. Like uh, my intro for you was like, you know, Michael sold a company to Google within seven months. And then he, like, that's like, and then after that, you help, um, a really big celebrity started the VC fund and then you've been. Very, just like very successful you invest in over 33 unicorns and counting and anyway so i feel like you have just accomplished all my career goals oh, you're too kind. thank anyway. you thank you that, that's that's really, really kind of me to say that um we'll have you we'll need to have you for another session for um networking and then building up your network because i i think your network is insane from the yc people to celebrities um and you're just like amazing at just like you're really articulate and then like you're thinking really and in a really great structure all the time so i feel like these are things that i definitely try to learn from you and i feel like the audience can benefit too but thank you so much michael thank for you coming. thank you so I much for the time yeah i don't want to end late yeah. but anyway okay so and thank sorry. you grace <laughs>